greetings. Welcome, everybody. This is The Old School with Dr. Stephen Bourgeois and Ross Miller coming at you live from our various um, intellectual epicenters in our various own houses. Uh, the Old School podcast dealing with educational issues available on some of the platforms that you listen to your podcast on. Um, good morning, Dr. Bourgeois. How's it going? Mr. Miller, I'm, I'm fine. I think last episode I was a little grumpy. Um, still kind of in the grumpy mood, um, but maybe you're grumpier than I am. I hope so. I don't know. It's light outside. Uh, last time, if you recall, it was a kind of a late night. Uh, it, was, it was kind of like one of those um, old time radio shows that came on like at two in the morning and talked about UFOs. You know, it's kind of like that sort of vibe. And then, uh, but now it's light. It's daytime. We're out in the uh, legitimacy of the morning day. And so perhaps uh, this will be a better one better one well, i'm not saying that the last one was good well no i'm, I'm not <laughs> saying that the last one was bad i'm just saying perhaps you will feel better you said you were feeling a little cranky last time uh, i was um as i occasionally do um, yes so so what are we talking about on this early morning we're talking about students we have a lot to talk about with regards to students and it could be one of those things where we talk for a certain amount of time and then we think to ourselves this really needs to be like a 10-part episode you know because there's so many things to unravel with regards to students but i think the first thing we talk about was the idea of like intellectual stamina stamina uh attention span things of that nature kind of looking at maybe how students have changed or maybe they haven't changed maybe it's just us who have changed we almost need to look at ourselves as students. I mean, we've both had our share of, you know, being you know on the other side of the desk, I guess. Sure. And, you know, I, I think going back to, I, mean, I don't remember a lot about elementary or middle, middle school. I think I was just terrified and terribly shy and didn't want to be called on. I wanted it to, to go away. Um, and when I got to high school, I was terribly shy and wanted it to go away also. <laughs> so it was no question about stamina or engagement. I just wanted it to go away uh, without incident. Um, and honestly, I, I mean, I've had, I don't know, 13, 14 years of college, if you add it all up. Mm -hmm. um, I think I broke the 500-hour mark or something. Um, but uh, during that time, for most of it, I, I wanted it to go away also. Um, it wasn't until the doctoral courses where I, became confident and and um that i didn't want it to go away but i wanted to have conversations but that took a long time you know so, so you're saying prior to your doctorate your academic career was one filled with insecurity and a lack of confidence i was terrified i mean i might let's back up my master's degree was in german literature and i was one of about two american students the rest were native germans uh, <laughs> and, and my language ability was pretty good but not not good enough and so it, it, it was a struggle um and and, and that, that really continued and if i go backwards you know I'm, i i really i liked the time by myself you know in the mm -hmm. library and I, I did engage with the material but right. class was something to to put behind me so i could do my real work do you remember elementary middle school things like that, that it wasn't that you're acting like i'm really really old here but i well, no, I, I asked because my one of my wife's biggest discontents is that i do i do not recall very much my elementary years um, i remember a handful of things about elementary school there was a mean teacher there was a hot teacher that had a corvette i thought that was pretty cool you can't say hot anymore ross i can't no 
Well, she's probably not hot now anyway, so it doesn't matter. But so it's there's the mean us. teacher. <laughs> well, yeah. Hopefully she's still with us. There was the mean teacher, the hot teacher with the Corvette, the best friend. And then in the second grade, a girl named Paige Moody, who I proposed to with a mood ring. I thought it was clever because her name was Moody. It was a mood ring. And it always had the right colors when I gave it to her. So I just assumed we were meant to be together. And really, that's about the extent of my knowledge and remembrance of elementary school. That was it. And, and you're That's not going to complete the story about Miss Moody. Well, she well, she accepted, but then her family moved away. So what are you going to do? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, so what life's full of disappointment. Well, so we're saying we don't remember our, our early years very much. I certainly don't. But I do recall in, in high school, I had the sense that whatever school was, it wasn't necessarily for me. Because it was about trying to get through it. It was about trying to make sure I didn't fail anything. So I didn't have to repeat anything. And uh, by the time I was a junior, I was already mentally headed for the military. And so it just wasn't something that I was keen on. And so I think from both of our points of view, it's, it's, it is strange to sit here and try to assess students who are perhaps in some degree, not unlike us when we were students. Right. And I, and I, I complain about, you know, students who are grade mongers who you know, monitor their GPA every day uh, on tables and charts. And, um, but when I was in middle school, you know, one of my academic memories was a, a, a social studies class. Um, really it was a class in map making. And mm. that's well before computers. So you literally had to draw the maps and, um, and it was a really good geography course. I mean, we, we learned a lot, mm. but it, for me, it was all about the grade. And this teacher had a policy where he allowed extra credit. And mm. so you, you take tests, you participate, but if for every map you made, you'd get some extra credit. Um, okay. was, there was no cap on it. And so, so I took it, you know, quite seriously. And he, back then you could put grades in the classroom. So you had the student and a little chart, a little number, and, and, and it could show, you know, the future Dr. Bourgeois well above a hundred and above everybody in the class, like at about 132. Cause I would just sit down and make freaking maps all day. And you're trending upward. You were trending upwards. I was, but, and, and I guess I learned the abbreviations of the States and where they were by making those maps, but I was all about the grade. And, mm. you know, I'm just the kind of student that I, I complain about now. Yeah. I think we're allowed to criticize this because we have grown, we have matured, we have a, we've been exposed to different ideas and ways of doing things. I think, I think in, in critiquing the student today, it is not a critique of the student themselves, but a critique of the system that encourages what the students are holding dear and what they are valuing because it's based on what they're told to value. So the, the teacher has some effect on the attitude of the student with respect to grades or attention or all of that. So it's still, we're still always talking about teachers to some extent. The teachers, the administration, counseling, parents, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts here that we consider. Okay. Um, and then there are some elements of the modern day student that is affected by technology. And, you know, one of the things we talked about was the idea of, attention span and things of that nature. And so I think it's, I think it's important to consider when, when we talk about students, 
you know, we are talking about a much larger contextual understanding of how these students got to be where they are, how they got to value what they value, and and their deficiencies as students are again things that are impacting them from outside of their realm and making them, you know, having these issues academically in our classrooms. Well, you could imagine teaching a class of say 25, but realistically you're teaching three or four who are engaged in the discussion. Right. Um, Some are looking for ways to distract themselves and others. um, They may want to take a walk kind of like you do (laughs) from faculty meetings, but but you you see that. Um, The thing I never liked was uh, the pencil sharpener because students would get up and that's when they had the, they had electric ones or the hand one. It didn't matter. It was just as annoying. Um, yes. And and I was a very patient teacher and I wait for that sound. And then the <laughs> student would say, okay, I'm going to keep going. So by the time they came back, they had a very short pencil and uh, no jokes there. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and I was kind of annoyed, but you had to sit through it. Um, eventually I, I got ahead of that and made a policy about that. But But I think the point is that you have some students who are, right with you actively engaged Mm. Uh, others who are trying to you know avoid it or actually entertain themselves other ways and then there's that whole group in the middle and maybe we can talk about that group in the middle what are we doing to make the situation with those kiddos worse you know the old joke that you get the students you deserve you get the children you deserve as a parent what are we doing to undermine those middle kids, those that larger group, their efforts in our classroom. I think it's um, almost every episode we talk about the test. Mm. Um, but but in this case, I think it's completely appropriate. Uh, if you sit in a, a teacher's classroom and just count how many times they say the test, the test, um, and the teacher holds the answers to the test and actually the questions too, and so there's kind of this negotiation back and forth. How much of the test are you going to release to me if we annoy you enough? Mm. Um, and so, so there's that uh, tension, but a teacher can really manage a class if they're saying, this is on the test, take notes, listen up. And then suddenly, mm-hmm. what do your students do? They open up their notes and they're taking notes now. Right. But if you preface it and said, this may or may not be on the test, but I'd like you to pay attention. Um take down some notes if you want to. There's going to be less note-taking. Um, so it's it's kind of a control thing, but but I, I, I would argue that the, the test and just the overt mention of the test uh, creates that kind of student that the teacher deserves. Well, for me, it's a bit of a conflict because the reason why, for example, I teach AP U.S. History. The reason why kids take it is because they intend to take the AP test over U.S. History at the end of the, at the, end of the year And so therefore, anything and everything uh, that they do is usually for the purposes of kind of ensuring their success on the test. And so um, my task is how to prepare a kid for a test without constantly saying, hey, listen, this could be on the test. Um, And it's not easy, but it is something I consciously do. You know, the idea of so there was some time. There was a time about five or six years ago that where they kind of restructured parts of the AP U.S. History curriculum by saying that you know you don't have to concentrate on everything. You know, there was a methodology that was being introduced that suggested that you know you can approach a class in such a way that you give the kids a, a more clear idea of what to expect. 
And I'm, but the problem is I kind of liked the lack of clarity, you know, because it, it, it kind of fostered a different approach to the material. You know, if, if I, if I give you a textbook and I say, okay, well, I want you to read chapter six. Okay. What am I looking for? You know, the, the, that new kind of the new way of looking at it, the new way of looking at the test is say, okay, well, you want to look at those bold words. You want to make sure you know what those means. You want to answer those questions at the end of the chapter, what have you. And for me, I hand them the textbook and I say, okay, I need you to read chapter six. And they're like, okay, what am I looking for? I don't know. Why don't you figure it out? You know, part of it is, and it's not, it's not about being a jerk, but it's about saying, listen, you need to be able to look at some material, written material, because history is a reading subject, as as we've I've already declared on this thing. Read this, read this block of uh, text, and I want you to try to extrapolate what you think is most important. Now, that's not done in isolation, because part of what I do is also teach students how to read text, you know, and and so it's not like they're just being handed something and saying good luck to you, you know. I hope I hope it all works out for you. But rather, here's a text. Now, remember us talking about how you read text. And it's the idea of not trying to, because they're always looking for a shortcut. And so the shortcut is, well, you study the keywords and then you answer the questions and then Bob's your uncle. But I think part of the thing that we're trying to teach or I'm trying to teach is to look at it more holistically. You know, if you stop worrying about the test and just treat the subject honestly, you're going to, you're going to be where you want to be at the end of the day. But just the idea of getting the kids to come to that conclusion is hard to do. I think what you just said applies to courses on literature as well. Um, teachers uh, often include a, a reading study guide where, where students, as they read, they answer questions. Mm-hmm. And um, it's supposed to ensure that the student read it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a gotcha thing, but it's also a tool to help them remember what they're reading. But the Types of questions uh, often I've looked at my my kids' work uh, mm-hmm. are, are pretty much you know statements of uh, fact you know not not really interpretation of the text but names and dates to convert it to history ba- real basic who said this who did that what's the storyline what's the plot mm-hmm. nothing nothing above that and so that communicates the level of I guess the depth of that, that's required and and my experience is that students are gonna rise as high as you want them. But if, but if you don't uh, encourage anything more than knowing who said what and what's the, the plot line, that, that's the, the level that they're going to give you. Hmm. And the question is, what is the cumulative effect of asking them these rather shallow goals and shallow uh, expectations? What is the cumulative effect of that? And you combine that with a culture that does not encourage exposition, that does not encourage in-depth looks at anything. And then you end up dealing with a child that's not able to concentrate longer than 10 minutes on anything. You know, the, the, the standard idea is that you never want to spend longer than 20 minutes on any one particular thing within a classroom. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a good idea to have. Uh, as long as it's not based on the fact that you don't think your kid can handle anything longer than 20 minutes. And for some of our kids, we're talking about maybe not five minutes. And so the question is, is that approach, the idea of saying, hey, just this guy, the guided reading exercise, is that an example of kind of undermining your students' ability to be able to study and to be able to stick it out and to work through stuff? You know, is, is that a problem? I think the, the long-term effect is that you're going to create students who don't like to read. 
because mm. they don't get to have the peer experience um, and, and an open discussion. And, and they're, they're really, they're trained now to, to give you little, I guess, chunks of, of things. And, and they, in their comfort zone, they want to know what, what they're looking for, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and for an advanced placement course, the, the student wants to, to know that they're going to be paid twice. You know, they want to be paid for your class to get a good grade, and they want to be paid on the AP test. Right. If you don't have both of those, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're going to grumble and, and really be uncomfortable. And their impression of your subject um, is, is unfavorable because mm-hmm. they're in that area of discomfort uh, where they don't know why they're doing it. And, and what you and I would want is for them to say, well, because we love the, the, the material, we love the topic, we want you to explore this beyond this class. Yeah, I don't get that very often. I don't get students coming up to me, Mr. Muller, I was wondering if we could just sit down here and just discuss some of the finer points of the Great Depression. You know, We've so, just been arguing amongst ourselves about what is the role of government? And we thought to ourselves, this is a good venue through which to have this discussion. But so why do you I don't think that, that is? Why, why, why is that? Because it, 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 to me, it sounds like a great conversation that the, the students are using about 10% of your capacity. You have a wealth of knowledge. You're wonderful at, at, at asking questions. That's your gift and pursuing it with uh, open-ended questions that lead to maybe challenging areas. But you're still probably using about 10% of your capacity because of these implicit mm-hmm. rules of engagement, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I've, I've confronted is our student, and every teacher has this, I assume, um, students who have come up to them and said, you know, I'm just, you know, or, or in a fit of frustration, they, just, they say this class is boring. And I was like, well, I get it could be certainly um, uh, if I'm the only one talking, it certainly can be boring. However, there is another part of the equation I think you're missing. and That's you. You know, what are you doing? You know, and so I think. Uh, for them, I think part of the attitude and the reason why they don't ask that kind of question, my ideal history student, is because one, maybe they don't care. Two, they're not interested. Three, they don't have time. Four, you know, the, it, it's not in their mind, it's not relevant to dig deeper if they don't feel like they're going to be asked about this later on. Every teacher has a handful of folks every year that are those kind of students that say, please teach me more. I want to avail myself of your expertise or what have you. But the vast majority of kiddos, you know, it's a business decision for them. You know, well, you know, remember the old joke about Deion Sanders that he never tackled just because he made a he made a business decision. It was either tackle, get hurt or continue on making money and being a player. I think for some of these students, they're sitting there thinking to themselves, okay, business decision I only have this much time to con- uh, commit to u.s history so i'm going to do that and i'm going to focus on this other stuff and so constantly students are making these business decisions on a day-in day-out basis and that's what governs how they interact with the material so potentially the the attention span of a student we're really underestimating it because in certain domains for example in athletics um, these students are locked in and they'll they'll work really hard focused and and there's not a question of them, you know, lose, losing sight of what they're doing or why. Um, music is another example. I mean, students practice like crazy. There's a competitive aspect, but they also eventually love it. Um, so that the capacity is there, but but you know, I think the difference 
is that in in music there's not that kind of a test necessarily mm-hmm. uh, and and the same thing is true in in athletics i mean there are definitely benchmarks and getting yelled at and winning and all those things but but the the test is still uh, it's not as present you know it's more in the background i guess well and with with regards to athletics the test is a much more organic type of thing you know if you go on the field on a friday night and you get your ass handed to you then well there's your test you just lost you just failed you know and so it's 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 a much more clear cut sort of thing but i think the other thing is is when you're on the athletic field or when you are in the practice room, you are removed from all the other things that typically distract a student in the course of a given class. And because you got all this other rigmarole in a class, that that enhances. And not even I could sit in a classroom and I could tell my students, put your phones away, and they'll put their phones away because you know I don't have any out and out rebels that you know. But and that's certainly not something you want to die on a hill for is to have your phone out. But to, they know it's there. <laughs> and it's almost like they're twitching to get the opportunity to use that daggum phone. And so, um, so because I think in a classroom, we allow so much crap in there. I think it fosters a attitude of a lack of attention and a lack of intellectual stamina. You're out in the football field, you're out in the soccer pitch. It's just you, the ball in the field. Okay. You're in a, you're, you're in the practice room. It's you, it's your instrument. It may be other folks that play the same instrument, but it it does not have all this other mess. But in a classroom, the mess is just piling on. Every single year, there's more stuff in the classroom. And I wonder if that doesn't also help create that lack of attention span. There, there are a lot of forces uh, that pull a student away. I mean, you mentioned the, the technology, the the concept of a notification uh, means, I mean, that's a nice way of saying a, a, a bell or something that distracts you. Right. You know? And, and it, it's something that you can't ignore. I mean, you can't mm-hmm. ignore a text message. It, it demands your, your attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's another thing that happens at school. And, and I mean, you and I were about to write a book on technology specifically, and we interviewed some students and um, what we gathered early on, and this this was probably 10 years ago, was that during a school day, there, there's a drama happening among students. And and so they're communicating, you know, with their phone, you know, and they're talking to each other, but it's it's a drama that's playing itself out in, in real time. And it starts when they walk in the door and it leaves, I mean, it kind of gets shaken up during lunch and passing periods, and it, it concludes at the end of the day and maybe even in, into the evening. So you're infringing on that drama by, talking about history you know so there are two things happening you know their 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 mind is not on history until you make it the case Mm. but that drama i I wouldn't underestimate it because that's that social drama for most of the students is is really really powerful and when we talk to those students as you said that was 10 years ago i mean you could easily say that the that the impulse on notifications and things of that nature have risen exponentially since we first talked to those kiddos 10 years ago yeah that's right and and they were saying oh it's all going to be okay remember that (laughs) it's going to be okay Um, and and at that point they they would not um they started to not want to open up their laptop because it took too long 
Right. So that, that was a, a sign to me, a warning, warning, you know, just because I know it doesn't, doesn't take that long to open up a laptop and have it, but, but that wait time was uh, excruciating, you know, for a high school kid. And mm-hmm. so they said the phone's faster. And so everything has gotten a lot faster. I mean, I don't even know if they had smartphones back then. Um, I think it was coming out. So. Yeah, that's right. Um, but the distractions and, and the, the speed of you know, all of the information going back and forth. Um, do you sense it? Because I, I mean, when I was teaching German, I had a internal clock, particularly when I was ta- uh, teaching grammar. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a four minute clock. You know, I'd be talking about something that was pretty complicated, you know, and, and after four minutes, the students would kind of glaze and, and then I'd transition to, you know, speaking German or practicing it. But sometimes yeah. you just have to get your hands dirty and explain something, you know, where you're mm-hmm. talking and they're listening. Um, but has it changed over the years? Have, have students changed in your mind? Well, for me, I think I see it with regards to how they handle questioning and their ability to withstand it. You know, I remember 10 years ago, you know, when that same group of kiddos that we're talking about, I had a discussion. I said, how does it feel to, to, to answer questions in a class? I think you remember, you know, we, 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 had kind of, we had kind of created this idea of this conversation that I should have with students. And you remember one of the kids he was a, he was a, he was a pretty smart kid and he was pretty clever and he was pretty engaged and he wanted to do well, but he said that his, that after the second question, he felt like he was being badgered. You know, the, the idea of being the, being able to withstand questions to be able to uh, withstand long sloths of material or information or work or explanation or practice or what have you it's certainly being increasingly infringed upon by outside forces. Now, whether they, how they look at questions, how they look at work or what have you, as far as the phone goes, and as far as the impact that you sense it, I sense it the most during testing. You know, when, when I'm not necessarily talking about my test, but I'm talking about like when, when um, you do like a state test right. in Texas, it's called a star test, or you do like an AP exam or what have you, you can see the withdrawal symptoms beginning to to emerge. I remember that it was it was painful to see towards the end of the the testing period. And remember, they don't allow the kids to have access to their t- uh, their their bags, their their phones, or anything like that. You just a book, see, right? Just a book. They can have a book. And some kids can't handle it, and they'll go to sleep. <laughs> they'll just put their head down. It's like I cannot handle reality absent of my phone. I think I'm just going to try to pass the time the quickest way I know how. And that is unconsciously. And so they go to sleep and then when they wake up, okay, you can use your phone now. That's great. Okay. I didn't have to endure any of that time without my phone. And so, and so you have those kids. And what's interesting is after the test, it's a very interesting phenomenon because there's that period after the test where they can't access their bags and phones yet, but they can talk. And you always get a couple of kids that put their head down. That's the kid that can't handle it. And then, but you also have a lot of kids that'll end up talking with one another and there'll be animated conversations and it looks like they're having fun. And it looks like, oh my, wow, they're really connecting, they're engaging with one another. And then the minute, the second you say, okay, get your phones, the conversation ends. No matter how much fun they were having, no matter how engaged they were, it comes to an end as soon as that phone is in their hand. and. 
I think to me that's it's sad, but it also is maybe indicative of what's happening in the classroom in general. I mean, just the idea, like you said, what's happening on that phone is a damn sight more important to them and, and more interesting to them than what's happening in the classroom. It's it's a frightening idea that they suddenly turn away from each other, you know, at yes. that moment. I mean, uh, I saw something like that. I don't know how many years ago it was, not that long ago, but it was a, a tennis t- tournament at uh, Wimbledon, and uh, the great Roger Federer won another championship, and and they have the ceremony or they're walking around with the trophy in in the stadium, but they also have a tradition where the the winner goes behind the stadium, you know, still on, a, on another balcony and greets the public, the mm-hmm. people who don't, you know, can't afford to buy tickets, but are there to, to celebrate. And so there's Roger Federer and he holds up his, his, you know, I think it's a, a plaque or that, that round thing. And, um, and it was quiet. And I said, why aren't they cheering? What's going on? And everybody was taking pictures of him or filming. Mm-hmm. Him. It was silent. It was the you know, most frightening, odd thing. Um, but that that idea that you know that capturing that that moment is more important than being in the moment. Well, this is one of the other things that our students lack, and again, I think they're being encouraged to dismiss it, and that is the idea of being in a moment. Now, we talked about it in connection with you know there's certain various religious and philosophical thoughts that, that emphasize the notion of being in the moment, whether we're talking about Buddhism, whether we're talking about transcendentalism. I mean, the idea that there are, there are core ideas and belief systems that say that your abilities as a person, as a human being is dependent upon your understanding and appreciation for the moment. And once you can't do that, well, then you've got a real problem on your hands. And I think you see it in some of our students. Um, I, I talked to one of my sons uh, about music and I asked him if he ever listens to a whole album. I guess we used to call them albums, a CD, mm-hmm. whatever, but a group mm-hmm. of songs by an artist. And he said, never, never happens anymore. I mean, you, you create your playlist and you listen to those or you listen to stations that you kind of curate. Mm-hmm. But but I wonder if there's something there as far as translating that idea into the classroom, because you're kind of giving them a, a record, a, a CD of, of Ross Miller, Mr. Miller's uh, greatest hits. That's right. Greatest hits. Um, but they're not able to to make their playlist. And, and that makes them nervous a little bit. You know, they don't have the remote um, and, and also they're, they're, they're lacking that, that control. So maybe the phenomenon of, of sitting in a room after a state test is also what they feel to some extent in a, in a classroom setting with a teacher teaching them. And it also explains and kind of, an, you know, that there's that. And I think it also explains a kind of reaction to that. You remember that infamous training session that we had where we were subjected to a video <clears throat> And the video, I don't have a cough button, sorry about that. But um, um, uh, it had a video showing kids saying, you know, we do our we do our uh, work on iPhones now, you know, or um, and it talked about meeting the kids where they were. We we text, we yes. email, we multitask. Multitask. And so, and of course, and our teachers and administrators and school leaders have bought into this. Well, my God, they text. We need to make sure that we in, incorporate texting or 
the phones or what have you into the ordinary everyday run-of-the-mill classroom. And it has extended to what some have called a kind of a relevance-based education that you only teach and you only teach in the way that's relevant to the student. And the idea being that then they will be more engaged and then they will be more interested and then they will do better on tests because now everything is about tests and how they, how they, how they're assessed and more importantly, how the schools are assessed. And now everything is about that. Now, a person stepping back away from that might say, isn't the purpose of education to get away from what you know? Isn't the purpose of education to be exposed to something beyond what you know or beyond what you're comfortable with? You know, and so I think this is like another kind of extension of a kind of a kowtowing to modern culture that schools are doing, that teachers are doing, that administrators and what have you are doing that ultimately are doing a disservice for our students long term. I think that all goes back to a misunderstanding um, with <clears throat> teachers and some of the professional development or learning that they've had over the years but the idea was to hook the students with with starting with with their world you know which is perfectly fine you mm -hmm. know and and so maybe you're, you're talking about uh roman history or something and and then you <clears throat> you provide an, an an example that's a modern parallel okay but that that's meant to hook the students not meant to be the curriculum right you know and so they're using the hook and thinking we need to stay there because and and what you're saying is, is no we need to move away from the hook pretty quickly um to explore some things that um the student doesn't necessarily have access to through experience otherwise it would be pretty damn boring you know well and you see it and it's, it's not that there was a bygone age in american education where people did not think this but one of the things that it kind of implicitly says when it is all about the modern connections and it's all about what's important to the student is that then the student can say, this is not relevant to me. I don't plan on using this in my career, my six figure career, which I'm going to start right after high school. This is about, this is about nothing. And so therefore it is nothing. It doesn't matter. And then, you know, then you have the kind of question that history teachers get from time to time. Why are we studying this? You know, I, I, I and I, I think I told the story. I, I, I had I had a world history class. I, it was a uh, and we were talking about the Mughals, the kind of a um, a group that controlled India uh, during uh, 16, 1700s, I believe. <clears throat> and I had a kid say, a "Kid, ask me in the middle of class, why are we studying this?" And my initial reaction was, "Who are you to say that someone is not worth studying? You've got everything figured out." You you got you got this whole thing locked down. You don't need any extra help. You know that's what you said to the kid. Well, I I said an abbreviated version of that, but I it did catch me off guard a little bit, and I was annoyed, and so I I probably reacted with annoyance. But think about that attitude for a second. Why are we studying these people? And think about all of the mental conditions that must be in place in that kid's head to ask that question. And part of it is how we teach students how to approach the material. If it's not connected to what they're interested in, if it's not connected to the phone, if it's not connected to their preconceived notions about what they're gonna do in their life, it is not relevant. 
And think about that. Think about the mindset that asked that question, you know, and I just, I, it's, it's, it's shocking and the audacity to ask that question, but just also the implication of what's going through that kid's head to ask that question. Well, I, I don't think it's anything personal. No, but but still, it, I mean, I think it's it goes back to our discussion of you know this instrumental value of your class. It's used to get a grade. It's used mm-hmm. to maybe get AP credit. It's used to affect their class ranking, uh, ultimately to get them into school to get them money. Right. So your class is about money. You know how do, how does that feel? Well. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, 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 we have seen an increasing bastardization of education. Uh, as soon as it became about getting into college, then the idea of getting into college is about getting a job. And it, and this idea of monetizing education. Now, this may seem Pollyanna. This may seem unrealistic. But good gracious. How a kid approaches a subject is going to be is going to dictate what they get from that subject. And you're telling me that a kid who is going to become some sort of engineering nerd making a gazillion dollars, he does not benefit or she does not benefit from art, that they don't benefit from music, that they don't benefit from foreign languages, from history. Now, I'll grant you my subject, probably more than any other subject is a slow burn. And people don't typically come around history until they're in their 30s and 40s. So I, I want to put that caveat out there. But I think we do our kids a disservice by teaching them it's okay to think like this. It's okay to dismiss subjects and categorize it as either important or not important, relevant or not relevant, based upon their own personal world, their own personal experience, or what they intend to have as their personal future. It makes me think of Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams standing on the chair, getting his, his, his students to yes. stand up on the chair and tear out the pages. Yes. Um, I, I hope that teachers, every teacher has that, not, not don't do it, by the way, that's a terrible <laughs> idea. You're going to um, get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, you would. But, but that they're talking about something that's transcendent, that, that is talking about the meaning, the joy of life. Um, and, and it should be, I mean, I, I, I would feel insulted um, to think that the, the thing that you've devoted your life to, you know, people are trivializing and they're trying to get past your class. They're trying to pass it, never to return. Um, so that's a, that's a battle. And, and then you have a lot of teachers and administrators who are really working against you also because they're interested in the, in the grade and the distribution of your failure rate and all, all these things. And how are the test scores? How are, how are your scores? So it's, I don't think there's anything easy about that. And, and being a English teacher or a history teacher, I think the, those are the area, the two fields that you're dealing with some sacred ideas. And you see, it's not, and you don't, you don't just see it on the school level. You don't just see it on the district level, this whole STEM movement, is based on the notion, and it started with the idea that this is where you can make real money. And somehow a person is not complete unless they go for engineering or math or science or what have you. You know, there, for example, there, there was a very real problem some years ago that young girls did not see a future in science and mathematics because it was deemed 
I don't know whether people said it implicitly or explicitly, where they got the sense that the science and the maths were not for them, that it was more about and it should be more about literature and poetry and what have you. That was supposedly the feminine arts, I guess. And there's been a lot of efforts over the last couple of decades to say, no, you should be able to go for anything. You should be able to go for math. You can go for science. You can go for anything. But what happened is that people overcorrected. And so now any kid or any young lady who decides to go towards um, go towards uh, uh, history or, you know, it's considered a failure. This, you, you know, you should be going towards the math and going towards the science. That's what the whole STEM thing is about. It's not just about the idea that says everyone should have an access to math and science and a career in those fields, and they certainly should have access to it. But to suggest that that's the only viable because they pay money because they get a better job because of it, a better paying job because of it. I think that that's where you start getting into some problematic areas. And I think that's where history and that's where language has taken a back seat. And I can't help but think it's, it's not for, it's not for the better. Certainly, you know, the, the image of overcorrecting that, you know, I think that's, uh, that's that sound because, um, what it does is that you 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 kind of take away from one thing uh, to add to another, mm. and, and we have a bias, both of us, to the liberal arts. Yes, um, but you know, and we share a belief that getting a foundation in the liberal arts is a foundation in in thinking and, mm-hmm. and also a discipline where you can accomplish other things later because you've you've learned to sustain attention. Um, but we're, I mean, the idea of, of STEM in high school, for example, is, is you're jumping ahead. The foundation isn't there yet. Um, and you, you don't know how to communicate or write. And, and maybe you can learn it through STEM. Um, but I would say we're, we're, we're jumping the gun a little bit. And, and a high school student, I mean, I, I mean, I even think that a undergraduate degree should be in the liberal arts. And then you specialize a little bit later. But we're trying to specialize really, really early, telling eighth graders, what's your career path how the mm-hmm. hell do they know you know they're next grade. <laughs> i don't know i, I in, in we're, it looks like we're kind of like in a wrapping up period but i think but i i would like to see a reevaluation of how we treat the humanities how you know and again we we have our biases but i don't think i come to this with a bias necessarily against science or math it's just a question that all these subjects can one coexist and co-mingle and two you know, there is kind of a, a, a kind of a, a staggered approach that we got to have to this. First, to learn how to think, then to start thinking in ways that specialize in one area or the other. I think it's a good way of going about it. You know, and it's why you had in the in in years gone by. You know, the idea of the classical liberal education, and then you moved on to something else. Then you moved on to a kind of a more focused discipline. I think we definitely agree on that. And I'm also really happy that you seem to be riled up again. And this is good. <laughs> uh, I, I said, I like you better when you're a little bit grumpy and uh, better this, when I move. Yeah. And this conversation <laughs> has, has you know, kind of gotten both of us grumpy and um, we'll probably talk more about STEM. We'll probably get a little bit of hate mail. Actually, we have it set where we can't get any comments. And I kind of like that. <laughs> on this. I'm not interested in suggestions. I'm, I'm interested in what you have to say and, and hopefully a few people enjoy it. Yes, hopefully so. Um, well, um, let's put a, put a fork in this one uh, for the time being, because like you said, there's plenty left to be said going forward. But uh, 
I kind of like how we kind of um, ended things here with the promise of more later. Maybe, or maybe we had the final word on these topics and no one will ever um, get into them again because we did such a fine job. I don't think that's true, but who knows? We'll, we'll see how it goes. But There we go. <laughs> well, sir, I guess I'll say goodbye first. Here, Miller. And goodbye here, Dr. Bourgeois. Mm-hmm.